Hello, I am Jan Fran and welcome to The Briefing. The latest news headlines to your headphones this Monday, November 30th. And today on The Briefing, Tom and I are going to meet a 25-year-old man who sued his $50 billion super fund over its failure to act on climate change. The whole industry has to look at their own policies and say, well, we might be liable as well. You know, our members could possibly sue us as well if our policies are the same. Yeah, he started suing his super fund at the age of 23. I can assure you I definitely wasn't doing that at 23. And spoiler alert, he won. So we're going to find out what actually made him sue and what it is that he got his fund to commit to. Before we get to that, though, Annika Smethurst is with me for the big stories of the day. Morning, Jan. As many of you will know, heat records were broken across Australia's east on the weekend. Dozens of fires continue to burn, though. New South Wales, southeast Queensland, central Victoria, where I hail from, and South Australia sweltered through the first heat wave of the season this weekend. It was a scorcher. Sydney recorded its first back-to-back days of over 40 degrees in November since records began, and also it recorded its hottest November night on record. Uh, the temperature did not drop below 25, so if you couldn't sleep, that's why. A cool change came through yesterday, though, dropping from 35 degrees to 26 degrees in 20 minutes in Sydney. I was on Twitter on Sunday and that's all anyone could talk about. The cool change, the southerly, was very boring. I'm not going to complain about Canberra then, Jan. Look, the Weather Bureau's Rosemary Barr says firefighters in parts of Queensland and New South Wales will face another challenging day particularly inland and central northern parts of the country. So that's inland New South Wales, particularly in the north and in southeast Queensland. The coastal areas can expect a little bit of relief during the early parts of the week. Yeah, and if you want to know how hot it got, the Weather Bureau says that Saturday records were 47.5 degrees in Mari in South Australia, 47.4 degrees in Roxbury Downs in South Australia, Woo, South Australia, hot for you. And 46.4 degrees in Birdsville in Queensland. That is kind of ridiculous. Look, in the meantime, the pandemic has had a big short-term impact on emissions. A dive in transport use saw emissions plunge to their lowest levels in three decades since 1998, according to a federal government report which will be released today. That's it. We've cracked it. That's how you reduce emissions. <laughs> Just do nothing. Don't catch public transport, don't, don't drive to work. Lock down an entire city. We've done it. More than 2 million Australian workers went off the JobKeeper payment since the federal government reduced the wage subsidy at the end of September. Yes, so back in March, more than 3.6 million people were on the scheme. Uh, it paid around $70 billion in support in the first six months alone. And that number did drop to 1.5 million in the December quarter. Now, Federal government says that this is a good sign of economic recovery. Um, they forecast in the October federal budget that 2.2 million workers would still need to be on the subsidy, but it looks like only half that many people do, according to these latest figures. So it does seem to be a good sign. I think once we really look at the numbers, we'll work out whether there are people that have fallen through the cracks here, people who might still need to be on JobKeeper but for whatever reason are no longer eligible. And if you take out Victoria, the rate of employment has recovered to be less than 1% below the level it was in March. Yeah, so things are, you know, they're they're, they're looking good. Uh, JobKeeper, which has been paired back and split into two tiers since starting in March, 
It's due to run till the end of March in 2021. So right now, singles get $815 a fortnight. That's going to drop, though, to $715 a fortnight between January and March next year. So if you are on the scheme, anticipate that. A testing blitz is continuing in Adelaide after revelations that an infected man left quarantine and went to a popular shopping centre. The man in his 30s is a student at Flinders University who'd come into contact with a confirmed case. He went to seven different locations on Sunday, November 22. We've all been working really hard to get on top of it, so I'm disappointed about it. You have to stay in quarantine. That was the Chief Public Health Officer, Nicola Spurrier, there. Um, She's also pretty worried about a recent dip in the number of people getting tested for the virus in SA. From tomorrow, masks will be mandatory in all healthcare facilities. They've managed to get on top of the infections relatively okay, haven't they? Yeah, that last little outbreak recently scared everybody, but obviously somebody was telling a few porkies there and they managed to get on top of that one. Look, I know they're disappointed the number of testings down, but I'm always surprised how many people are still getting tested, Jan. Were you ever tested? Yes, I did get tested once because um, I had symptoms and I thought, look, I've got symptoms, I've got to get tested. And it was actually a very smooth process and uh, I didn't have I did COVID. It once. I did not like it. Straight up the nose, did not enjoy it. But it's good to see people are still doing it. So get out and do it if you're sick. And the UK could start vaccinating against COVID-19 as early as... Next week, that Jen. Is so early. I'm constantly surprised at the fact that a few months ago we didn't have a vaccine. Now there's news that the UK might be vaccinating citizens as early as next week. That's, I mean, that's great. Good for them. This is according to a report by the Financial Times, by the way. They are reporting that people could get the Pfizer vaccine just hours after it is approved. And that could be, I stress the word could here, but it could be as early as December 7. Right now, the country is averaging more than 12,000 cases a day. Let that sink in for a minute. In response, from Thursday, it's rolling out a new tiered system to allow localised lockdowns. Yeah, overnight, Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab was asked whether the country could face a third wave early next year if the rules are not followed. Well, there's a risk of that if we don't get the balance right. Well, there you go. There is always a risk of that if you don't get the balance right. So hopefully they get the balance right and they also get the vaccine. Um, If they do, they'll be the first Western country to basically give the jab a green light. Three vaccines are edging towards the finish line. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. You might have heard those terms. They're the different companies that are producing vaccines that are looking good. We've signed up to the AstraZeneca vaccine. um, So we're going to have to I guess, hear news in the next few months as to where that is. All right, Anarchy, you're jumping out. Tom's back in. We're going to talk millennials suing super funds. Hi, Tom. What were you doing when you were 23? Hey, Jen. I um, I was living in Amsterdam working as a part-time model. And had long hair and wore <laughs> boot-cut corduroy pants. Honestly, that was just a rhetorical question, really. Oh, you really didn't want that? <laughs> no. Well, what, I'll, I'll ask you, what were you doing? Well, I'll tell you what I wasn't doing okay. when I was 23. I was not suing one of Australia's biggest super funds over its handling of climate change. I was just sitting at home, probably avoiding doing uni work by looking around on the internet. I ended up just uh, emailing my super fund with just some basic questions about climate change. And it all just kind of snowballed from there. 
So that is Mark McVeigh. You're going to hear his amazing story, how he forced his super fund, Rest Super, with over $50 billion worth of funds under management to commit to being carbon neutral by 2050. Yeah, his story is part of a much bigger movement of shareholders, investors, consumers, forcing companies to commit to stronger action on climate change. Yeah, Mark is with us now. Mark, tell us how your case came about. Yeah, so I guess it happened in small steps. So when REST didn't really send me anything that I was I was really chasing, they weren't giving the information I wanted, I kind of talked to some people and and they kind of referred me on to other people. And there's kind of a, a few steps there where we tried to, you know, talk to the regulator and see if they could help me. And, and in the end, I wasn't getting anywhere. And so legal action was really the only way forward. Why do this, Mark? Why actually pursue this through the court? What was driving you? To be honest, I think it was mostly stubbornness. I didn't like getting told no. I, I kind of thought that the information that I was requesting, I, I was kind of entitled to as a member of REST. It was a point of, of meaningful change that could really do something. And I guess in Australia where there isn't a lot of push from the government or, you know, there, there isn't a lot of voluntary push either with a lot of climate change in these kind of areas. So it was something that was novel and could actually make some change. And what do you hope to happen by doing this? Um, I wanted to push rest um, to make some more you know, progressive policies and, and actually take climate change risk into account. And I guess the idea was the, the general impact on the wider industry as well. You know, Seeing this case against rest, the whole industry has to look at their own policies and say, well, we might be liable as well. You know, our members could possibly sue us as well if, if our policies are the same. So, yeah, there was that idea that the, the whole industry will have to change. So why did you settle the case out of court, Mark? Because you spoke there about, you know, pushing other companies to take stronger action on climate change. If you went to the court and you won, you would have set a legal precedent that would force those other super funds to do more. So why did you settle? Yeah, so Russ came to us with a settlement offer, I think, on the 11th hour, like the day before the trial. Basically, you know, I get legal advice from the lawyers involved and with any case, there's a risk that not only will you not win, but you could lose and you could uh, actually do more damage than if you didn't do the case at all. So what ended up happening with REST and the big changes they made, um, we're actually really, really happy. Because you've got this massive super fund to basically change the way it invests and to commit to net zero emissions by 2050, which is huge. Um, What was that moment like hearing the outcome for you? Uh, It was a great relief. I mean, we've been doing this for for three years now. Um, So it it was definitely a tremendous relief. And yeah, it was great to to celebrate that and uh, kind of take the the weight off that, um, you know, idea of going to court. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic <laughs> feeling. It's a bold strategy. It um, is a bold strategy. Yeah, when you talk about the downsides of losing especially. So where to from here? Are you keeping the pressure on REST to live up to this? Are you trying to push other corporate organisations to do the same thing? And have you thought about developing some you know, equally creative tactics to get the federal government to do more. Yeah, can you get the federal government to commit to 2050 zero net emissions? <laughs> yeah, look, um, I think the, the big place for, for pressure in Australia at the moment when government is not doing much and, and everyone's kind of given up on trying to get the government to do things is to focus on the financial institutions, your banks, your insurance, your superannuation, 
uh, and that's where I'm going to be spending my time and, and my campaigning. That was Mark McVeigh, mm. a millennial hero. Hero of all the millennials, yeah. Interesting that part of his motivation, I guess, was disappointment in the federal government's climate policy ambitions or perhaps lack thereof. They haven't committed to a net zero emissions target by 2050. Um, we are one of the only developed countries not to do that. The EU has, the UK has, NZ, Korea, Japan, even the incoming US administration has. China has committed to carbon neutral by 2060. So we're lagging behind a little bit there, government-wise. Yeah, so that's why we're looking at what super funds and other businesses can do in this briefing topic. Alongside what happened with Mark and his super fund, um, a number of other super funds have committed to achieving net zero carbon emissions in their investment portfolios. Yeah, HESTA uh, was, that's the super fund for the health and community sector workers. Uh, They committed in June. UniSuper, that's the industry fund for uni workers, they committed in September. CBUS, the construction and mining industry super, also committed to those targets last month. Yeah, so that's the super funds. Let's actually talk about the big businesses in Australia, because they're, they're the companies that these super funds are actually mm-hmm. investing in. So it really depends what those businesses do as to whether the super funds who invest in them come out carbon neutral by 2050. Yeah. And look, there has been some interesting progress in this space. There's been a number of big Australian companies that have, you know, they've come out, they've made some strong public pledges. Yeah. The Woolies one was interesting earlier this month. They committed to using all renewable energy by 2025 Mm. and to be carbon positive by 2050. Yeah, ANZ also came out supporting uh, the Paris Accords. So that is, again, committing to net zero by 2050. And in September, BHP announced carbon reduction goals, including being a net zero emitter by 2050 as well. Yeah, one of the world's biggest mining companies. Mm. Well, Scott Phillips, he is a partner at the law firm Arnold Block Lieber. They specialise in something called shareholder activism. Um, Scott's with us now. Scott, how much impact do you think Mark McVeigh's settlement with REST will have? I think the proof will be in the pudding and it'll be interesting to see what they do going forward. Um, And what I would really like to see is kind of more um, regular updates and information on exactly what they're doing about it. Mm. Um, The real challenge activists face is they don't necessarily have all the information that a board or a super fund trustee has to be able to decide what investments to make, what investments to reject and what impact that will have. That's why, for the most part, activists are just asking for more information, maybe broad commitments to things like net zero emissions at some point in time, without granular details as to exactly how they're going to go about it. I guess part of the motivation here for Mark was that the federal government isn't committing to net zero emissions by 2050. If enough businesses commit to taking that step or to taking strong actions in that direction, do you reckon that sort of makes the federal government a little bit irrelevant in their hesitance? Like, can businesses and consumers actually get us there without federal government policy or oversight? <laughs> I wouldn't try and speculate as to whether someone can or anyone can get us to net, net zero emissions at some point in time, but they can definitely have an influence, just like everyone, every individual can have an influence. Mm. Um, one fear, of course, is that it's just going to drive these businesses into private hands, because if all the public companies with lots of shareholders and super funds invested in them um, commit to net zero emissions, these other assets take a dirty coal power plant. Does it get shut down or does it move into private ownership where it can do what it wants and oh. where there's no such um, review or reporting on its activities? That's really interesting. So that, I guess, demonstrates how you know publicly listed companies are, are open to the 
the full glare of their shareholders and therefore the public. But there's so much business that that basically Operates is privately. Yeah, is exactly. an owner under and, that and, structure, and, and that 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 doesn't mean shareholders shouldn't do what they can and shouldn't stand by idly. But it it does mean that ultimately you've got to think government action is required to. Um, line everything up and to avoid the same problems just happening behind the scenes in private hands. So what are the big announcements that have come in recent times from big corporations? The ones that I think are really interesting are the ones that wouldn't naturally take that position. Um, So you look at the oil and gas, either producers or or processors, and that's where um, shareholders are starting to stand up and demand that they do. So at the annual general meeting this year of of a company called Santos, which is one of Australia's Mm. biggest oil and gas producers, there were some resolutions put by shareholders for a vote of all the other shareholders, essentially saying that they don't want Santos to be lobbying the government um, in a way that's inconsistent with the Paris Climate Accord. Do you think this is just something that we're just going to see more and more of in the coming years and decades? No question. Yeah, absolutely no question. This is we're behind in Australia. The the US is is a few years ahead of us, um, and in the US it's it's constant. Um, it's it's hard to see an AGM in the US of a major company that has kind of climate impact without a resolution of this kind being put to the meeting. And I think it's going to follow here. Is there a chance that we are sort of getting PR spin from these companies? And it sounds good, but you know you've got someone who digs up tons of minerals from the ground, um, you know, big coal mining companies saying the right things, but still having a really a really negative impact on our carbon emissions. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, isn't it, Tom? And, and definitely, because if you think about what a company is and what the board's obligation to shareholders is, it's to essentially maximise profits, maximise returns for shareholders. And so whilst they come out and say they're going to be supportive of climate action or, or emissions targets, the real question becomes what happens when their profits conflict with, with that goal. Yeah, well, that's up to the shareholders to hang on, isn't it, if, and put their money where their mouth is. So if you've got shareholder activists saying, well, we want you to take stronger action on climate change, they potentially have to, you know, wear the reality that they might not get as strong a returns on their investment. Yeah, and, and that's that's the piece that we haven't yet seen in Australia. So for the most part, the shareholder votes in Australia have and, and in the US have been about reporting. It's been about tell us what you're doing. We want more information. Right. It hasn't been um, take actions that are going to cost us money. And that's really where and the that, rubber meets the road is when yeah. shareholders actually have to put effectively put their hands in their own pockets and say, I'm going to pay for this. That was lawyer Scott Phillips talking about shareholder activism. And saying essentially that calling for transparency is one thing, but um, you know, shareholders actually losing their own money on, you know, that'll I be guess, the real test, yeah. won't it? Yeah. And look, you know, we are all shareholders to some extent. If we're getting paid super, we're shareholders in those super funds. So if you feel like you want to put any pressure on super funds, um, one of the things that you can do is write to them. And the other one is just think about what it is that they're investing in. So maybe think of a super fund that might be investing in renewables and head in that direction. Well, you can actually choose which companies, individual companies, you invest in through your super. So you can call your super fund and get that capability to choose which companies. And you can choose companies that that you think are doing the right thing. I think it was also interesting in in Scott's interview there that he was sort of optimistic and sceptical that it's easy to make these pledges, but actually ascertaining whether they get there is a lot, lot harder but I imagine that getting these companies to say responsible things is heading in the right direction to them hopefully it's doing a, responsible yeah, things. It's a good first step, 
but it's still a first step. There's a lot of other steps that have to happen in order to reach those ambitious targets. All right, that is it for our show today. Tomorrow, we're going to take a look at the delivery drivers dying for your dinner. Five delivery drivers have died on our roads in the last two months. We're going to find out what is going on there and what can be done about it. That is tomorrow. As always, if you like the show, make sure you tell a mate. Tell whoever you want to tell about the show. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to hear from new listeners as well. But otherwise, catch you tomorrow. A Podcast One production.